as we join Nehemiah in Nehemiah 2, Jerusalem is in ruins. And it's not supposed to be that way. Jerusalem means something in God's plan, especially at this stage in God's plan. It's described in Psalm 48, starting in verse 1, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. Then in verses 12 through 14, Walk about Zion, that's Jerusalem. Go around her, number her towers, consider well her ramparts. Go through her citadels, that you may tell the next generation that this is our God. Our God forever and ever. He will guide us forever. You can't do that very well in Jerusalem as it sits in Nehemiah 2. You can't go around and count her citadels, count the different parts of her walls and say, this is our God. This city represents the presence of God with his people because Jerusalem is a mess. And as a result, to use Daniel's words from 70 years before Nehemiah, the people of Jerusalem are exposed to open shame. The city that represents God's people is in ruins. And Nehemiah, as one of God's people, takes that personally. He's not okay with it. And he knows that God intends for the city to be rebuilt. So now he begins to join God in that work. In the story of Nehemiah 2, we see a picture of what it means to do that. What it means to join God in the work that he intends to do. What it means to put your hands where God's hands are. Nehemiah started praying around December, according to our calendar. And now it's April. It's been about four months. He's heavily front-loaded the prayer. And we saw last week that lament opens the door to, uh, to petition, or rather to confession. Confession opens the door to petition, to asking. And asking opens the door to acting. And that's what happens here. Nehemiah has been asking, and now that has opened the door to action. I'm not going to read uh, the whole text all at once this morning. I want to read it as we move through it. So I do want to encourage you to have uh, your Bible, whether electronic or paper, open to uh, Nehemiah chapter 2. If you are using a sanctuary copy of the Bible, then you'll find Nehemiah chapter 2 on page 398. Just to give us our bearings in this particular story and how it's going to fit together, this story in chapter 2 is going to match the rest of Nehemiah in the sense that what's going to happen is Nehemiah is going to face a rotation of obstacles and opposition, problems and enemies. Hit a problem, a potential problem, and then a real enemy. And it'll go back and forth and back and forth. That's going to happen twice this morning. An obstacle and an opposition. A problem and an enemy. Both, both create the need for the hand of God to work on behalf of Nehemiah. And both create the opportunity to see the hand of God at work. 
And we need that because we join God in his work as well. We're not usually working to build a physical city. But what did Jerusalem do? Jerusalem represented the fact that God was with his people. That's what we're about as well. We're about demonstrating the reality of the kingdom of Christ. The fact that God, through Jesus, dwells with his people today. And we show that in a whole bunch of different ways. We build with God in many different ways. Show that God is with his people by raising our kids. We do it by talking with our friends about Christ. We do it through a prayer walk. We do it through the things that we get paid to do daily or weekly. We do it sometimes, if you have this very special and strategic call on your life, through interacting on social media. Maybe most of us shouldn't actually be doing that, but for some of us, God has a special call to actually exercise profitable influence in the lives of others in that way. There is a way to do that in a way that builds within the kingdom of Christ. We join God in his work. And when you commit yourself to the work of God, to partnering with God in what he's doing, you can anticipate obstacles and opposition, problems and enemies that stand between you and the work to be done so that you can't turn away from them. You can't turn and run. You have to keep going forward and you can't handle them alone. And so they give you an opportunity to see the hand of the God of heaven at work for you and with you. We see the first obstacle that Nehemiah faces in verses 1 through 8. The first obstacle is the king himself. He says in verses 1 through 2, In the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing that you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. We can imagine perhaps just the basic idea that you shouldn't be unhappy in the presence of the king. You need to leave your personal problems at home. And when you come to serve the king, then you need to be happy around him so things are pleasant around him. And if you're not, then he's going to get upset with you and you're going to get in trouble. I don't think that's why Nehemiah is very much afraid here. There is far more at stake. Nehemiah has actually been sad for four months. And he's been bringing that sadness into the presence of God. And then that, that asking, within that sadness, saying, Lord, do something about this. That asking, we saw last week at the very end of chapter 1, has opened the door to acting. And as Nehemiah allows himself to be openly sad in the presence of the king, he is acting. He's just asked the Lord, give me favor in the presence of this man, the king. Give me mercy In the presence of this man, in other words, I'm about to do something. It's something that's risky. And so that's what he does. And he allows himself, it appears, to be sad in the presence of the king in order to take another step into acting. And the king asks him about it. And Nehemiah starts slowly. 
He is risky, but he's not reckless. And so very selectively, he speaks in a way that's designed to gently present his concerns to the king. It says in verse 3, I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king catches on and he sees that Nehemiah's sadness is definitely more than just an overflow of emotion that he couldn't hold in anymore. He knows that Nehemiah is asking for something. So he says, verse 4, what are you requesting? So now Nehemiah knows that the king knows. He knows that the king has, has, has caught on to what he is hinting to him. So there's really no going back. He has to move forward. It helps for us to know some of the background. Just how much risk Nehemiah is taking when he brings his concerns before the king. We saw this last week, but it's worth reviewing again. Nehemiah is grieved because Jerusalem is in ruins and its people are exposed to open shame. Why is Jerusalem still in ruins? It's been 140 years since it was destroyed in the first place. God had made plans that his people would come back after 70 years. So it's been 70 years since the people have started coming back. Why is it still such a mess? It's been left that way because of a decision that's made by the king that Nehemiah is standing before right now. Go back to Ezra 4. This is just a few pages uh, before Nehemiah 2 in your Bible. The enemies of God's people have sent messages to the king. And they've told the king that if this city is rebuilt, you are going to face significant risk of loss. They, they write to the king in verse 13 of Ezra 4. Now be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. So the king writes them a letter back, and he says, make them stop. Don't let them build. Verse 21 of Ezra 4, Therefore make a decree that these men be made to cease, and that this city not be rebuilt, until a decree is made by me. So Nehemiah is asking the king to change his own decision. He's asking the king to change his policy. That's a risk, and it's an even greater risk, because Nehemiah is actually asking the king to take a risk himself. A risk that the king himself had described in chapter in verse 22 of chapter 4. End of the king's letter. And take care not to be slack in this matter. Why should damage grow to the hurt of the king? So Nehemiah is saying, King, I'm asking you to take that risk. This is a big deal. This is something that you can imagine being very afraid about. And so you can sympathize deeply with Nehemiah in verse 4. So I prayed to the God of heaven. When asking opens the door to action, and you walk through that door, you keep asking. Nehemiah, I think, has prepared himself for this, what's often called his arrow prayer. Just shot up right in the moment by four months of dedicated prayer. He's, he's developed this impulse in himself now to, instead of 
panicking or instead of trying to come up with something that he can get to work on his own, to pray something, he doesn't have much more time than to say, please help. Because he's about to answer the king. And he, he, he puts his foot out, asking the Lord to help with nothing to stand on that he can actually see with his eyes. And he's saying, Lord, here we go. I'm trusting you to catch me. And so he speaks again to the king. I said to the king, verse 5, and what he essentially asks, asks of the king is, I'm asking you to send me back to Jerusalem to rebuild it. And the king begins to ask for details in verse 6. How long are you going to be gone? And Nehemiah is well prepared to answer these questions. He's thought it through carefully. He has anticipated what the king's questions might be. He's done it well, and so he's able to give really clear answers, compellingly clear. As a result, verse 6, it pleased the king to send me. Imagine being in this situation, wondering what's going to happen. You don't know with certainty. You're the cupbearer to the king, so you have an in, you have a voice, but you don't have control. Now, the king says yes. He gets the contract. The king granted me what I asked for. It pleased the king to send me. Nehemiah has also considered other details that the king hasn't perhaps even thought about up till now. So along with this contract, this basic permission to go back, he says, I have a few other things for you to sign, if you'd be willing. I need some letters. He asks for letters to the governors of the province beyond the river, verse 7, so that they wouldn't stop him on his way to Jerusalem. We're going to meet them. We're going to find that they're a serious threat. So he says, I'm going to ask for letters from you that will allow me to get through them. And he also has planned enough to ask for letters to Asaph, verse 8, the keeper of the king's forest, for the building materials that he's going to need. So he's planned really well. Then he says in verse 8, the king granted me what I asked for. For, that's a big word. That's a word that should really pique our interest. That word for, the king granted me what I asked for. How, how do you ask kings for things and get what you're asking for? If Nehemiah can explain that question, he can write a bestseller for the day. How to ask kings for stuff and get it. That would sell. How would you fill in the blank? Even from the passage itself, if you were looking at how Nehemiah conducted himself in this passage, how would you finish that sentence? The king granted me what I asked for, for my plans were so impressively thoughtful. And they were. They were really thoughtful. Nehemiah had, had been ready with to-the-point answers. He didn't come to the king and say, well, you know, the timing is really unpredictable and it depends on how things go. And I don't really know. I really just need you to kind of be on my side here. None of that. He, he tells him how long he anticipates that it will take. He gives the king the kind of answers that a king would want. He'd even thought ahead about things the king didn't ask. But that's not the way that Nehemiah finishes the sentence. The king granted me what I asked for. For I nailed the diplomacy. 
He did. He didn't nail the diplomacy. He got it right. Three times he says, I said to the king. And each time he's very to the point. He's concise. He works in the right order. He starts just with a personal description of the pain that he was experiencing without accusing anybody of it. But he he seems to draw the king into just what he's experiencing personally and then moves on as the king asks to very specific requests. He actually very clearly models Proverbs 25.15 with patience a ruler may be persuaded and a soft tongue will break a bone. That's a helpful principle. That's not the way Nehemiah finishes the sentence. It's not, the king granted me what I asked for, for I nailed the the diplomacy. Maybe the king granted me what I asked for, for he trusted me and liked me. He did. He did trust him and like him. In fact, Nehemiah frames it that way when he brings his request to the king and says, if I have found favor in your sight, then would you do this? For me. And he clearly had. He had a history with the king. He was the king's cupbearer. This is the person who holds the king's wine, perhaps the thing that's most at risk of being poisoned at any time, and he's the one who's responsible to protect the king's life by putting safe wine into his hands. So he's been trusted. He's clearly trusted here. He finds favor in the sight of the king. We can see in the passage that all three of these things are true. He planned thoughtfully, he played his hand well, he had earned a winning reputation, and none of them is the way that he finishes the sentence. You can read it with me, perhaps you already have. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Acting wisely is good and necessary. And it's not enough. Acting wisely allows us to put our hands where God's hands are. They allow us to to find where God is working and join him in that work. And acting wisely is never enough. Our wise acting is never enough to give the work its power and make it effective. Even at his best, Nehemiah can't establish the work of his own hands. He gets to help, but he doesn't get to be the hero. That's really good news for Nehemiah and for us. Because what if someday he's not on the top of his game? What if someday he hasn't slept well, and so he has a bad day? Or is, or is the work of his hands at risk at that point? No, it's not, because that's not what he's depending on ultimately to make his work effective. He's depending on the good hand of his God. He needs something way more reliable than his own future performance. God is showing him that he has it. And he's going to need it. He's going to need it right away in the next part of Act 1. And that is as he faces actual opposition. He's faced an obstacle in the king, and the Lord has overcome that amazingly. And now he faces opposition in verses 9 and 10. We can imagine a contract from the king sort of fixing everything. Uh, what else do you need if the king himself has said that, yeah, you can, you can go and you have letters from me and I have given my permission, I've given my word that the city should be rebuilt. 
that should really fix everything. It doesn't. It doesn't fix everything. But it does give Nehemiah a fresh token of the fact that God is with him in this. And so he takes that with him in his hand as he takes the next step into the long haul layered work of rebuilding. Rebuilding that takes place under the nose of hostile enemies. People who hate what he's doing. The king was unpredictable. The governors of the province beyond the river, mentioned in verse 9, they're not unpredictable. They are a known problem. Sanballat and Tobiah, as they're named in verse 10, are the sworn enemies of God's people. And Nehemiah has come as prepared as it's possible to be. He, he's, he's done everything humanly that he can do to be ready. And he really has an impressive endorsement from the king as he shows up. He doesn't only have these letters, but he has a display of the king's endorsement as he, as he comes with I lost my place in verse in verse uh, verse ten. Here we are. I'm sorry. Verse nine. Sometimes we're not on our best game. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. There's this visible representation. The king is with me in this. But that's not what he's banking on. He's banking on something better. The king's endorsement would keep these enemies from acting on their hatred but it wouldn't change their hearts. They're going to stick around. They're going to keep coming back. And nothing less than the hand of the God of heaven will protect the work from their opposition. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. When you build in the kingdom, you will have enemies. Sometimes they'll show up with a face that you can see. We've also been told, actually very recently in our series in Ephesians, who our real enemies are. And our real enemies are characterized by power, by influence, by the ability to do things, by really the, the superhuman ability to do things. They're described as rulers and powers and authorities. Spiritual beings that oppose the work of God. That he's called us to do. And what you're doing. What you're trying to do. Will greatly displease them. None of our resources. Will make them go away. There's no ministry strategy. That we can have. That we can say. Alright. Now we've got it on our own. We can do this. We've figured this out. We can write a book, a book about this. About how to do ministry. In a successful way. No contract from the king will allow us to handle them on our own. And so we remember, by having seen the hand of God in the past, that we are not alone. Nehemiah was not the only one who had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. The good hand of his God was with him. And he's going to need that because now as he's moved from obstacle to opposition, he moves once again to another obstacle. Obstacle is actually the people whose welfare he has come to seek. Not an obstacle in the sense that, they are, uh, that they're against him, that uh, 
he shows up and they say, get out of here, we don't like you. But an obstacle in the sense that they are very understandably afraid. The people, as we meet them in verses 11 to 18, the people who are in the land, the people in Judah, the people in Jerusalem, they've been here for years. And the enemies of God's people are not some sort of faceless idea. They're real people that they have actually faced. They've faced them for years. They're people who have access to power, and they've used that access to power uh, against the rebuilding of Jerusalem in the past. And they're fully willing to do that again. And so living in a broken down city like Jerusalem is unpleasant, but as things stand now, it's also safe. So it makes all kinds of sense not to stir things up, not to try to rebuild, because we've seen what happens when we try to do that. So imagine in Nehemiah's place, he shows up and here's this sort of palace-dwelling newcomer. And if he shows up and just says, hey, I'm here from the palace. I am the cupbearer to the king. And I have a great idea for what I think we should do. I think you should join me. Let's rebuild Jerusalem. You think, who are you? Some kind of know-it-all. You have no idea what it is that we're facing. You think you're something amazing because of your position. You don't know our problems. And that's not what Nehemiah does. Once again, he acts wisely. And the very first thing that he does when he shows up in Jerusalem is he waits. Verse 11, I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Might not sound long, but kids, how long are the three days before Christmas? About a month, right? Grown-ups, uh, if you have a new ministry idea, something has come to your mind and you think, wow, we should do this, and you're around other believers, and that thing's burning in your heart, how long is three days? That's a long time. But he waits. He waits three days, and then when he acts, he acts very quietly and very selectively. When he takes action, he, he only takes what he absolutely needs in order to inspect the city. And he does it by night. He says, I had a few men with me, verse 12, and no animal but the one on which I rode. He's acting very quietly, and as he acts here, as he inspects the city by night, what's he doing? Well, he's gathering information. In one sense, you think, well, big deal. That's kind of a nerdy thing to do. But what's he doing when he gathers information? That's actually a, a scary thing to do if you're doing it honestly. Because information, looking at the real situation, doesn't always tell you what you want to hear. It doesn't always confirm the great ideas that you have. When you go from hearing about this problem and having a general idea about what to do about it, to actually seeing the problem with your eyes, all of a sudden things can become uh, much less simplistic and more complicated and harder to deal with. And yet, Nehemiah watches. He looks. He, he looks for what's actually happening. <clears throat> what, what allows Nehemiah to take the risk of gathering real information about this situation? I think we get a hint as to what allows him to do that in verse 12. What makes the difference is his understanding that his plans for Jerusalem 
are what God had put into my heart. These were not simply his own plans. These were plans that he had brought before the Lord. These were plans that, in the end, he was confident were the Lord's plans. The the principle for Nehemiah, as well as for us, is that your best ideas are not your own. Nehemiah doesn't show up as, as sort of the great white genius who shows up to sort of fix everything for people who have been dealing with the problem for a long time. He gets to help, but he doesn't get to be the hero. And he doesn't have to be. doesn't have to be the hero. His own desire, just like the favor that had been granted him before the king, was the work of God. And so, dependent action, acting in dependence on God, isn't afraid of the facts. He's willing to gather them. He's willing to see things as the people around him were seeing them. <clears throat> Sometimes it's really, really hard to do that. And we can get stuck with our own ideas about how things ought to be done. Remember a, a discussion among ministry leaders um, years ago. This wasn't here, this was, this was somewhere else. And we we're having a discussion about how to create connections uh, with, with people and families in our church. And there was one individual in our church who had, uh, one, of, one of the leaders who had experienced a great deal of success years before, doing unannounced visits to people's homes. And it had worked really well, and people had felt connected with, and they'd felt cared for. It had been so effective. It had borne fruit. And so he wanted to do this again. And we, we, we tried to explain to our brother that in our culture, given people's expectations today, if you just show up unannounced at somebody's door, you may not be received well. It might be counterproductive. It's not the kind of approach that people will appreciate today. And, and his only response was, well, well I disagree. Um, and he hadn't surveyed the situation. And, and he knew what had worked before. Understandably so, it had. But there was a new reality. And what needed to happen then is we needed to survey the new reality in order to determine what are, what, what's the path forward for us today. And so Nehemiah does that. He doesn't come in simply with his own ideas and just jump straight in. He gathers whatever information he can before he comes to people and talks to them. And he gathers enough information to understand their perspective and to join them in what they're feeling and what they know. And he identifies with them in the shame of belonging to an exposed city. He says to them in verse 17, You see the trouble we are in. How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. And then he calls them to join him in acting. Verse 17 again, Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. Again, he is not only taking a risk, but now he's asking a lot more people to join him in taking a risk. Sometimes it's a lot easier to risk yourself than to ask other people to join you in taking that risk. So, especially as a newcomer, Nehemiah needs favor with the people. Same way that he needed favor with the king, he needs favor with the people 
And he stakes everything on the same thing that had given him favor with the king. Verse 18, And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. He comes to them and says, Let me tell you the story about what God did. You're part of this story now, and I want to tell you what's happened earlier in this story, because only the good hand of God could have accomplished this. I talked to the king about this. The same king who said, stop this work, and he gave me letters to let it continue. How do you explain that? The letters from the king are good news, but ultimately, that's only because of the good news they point to. The good news that God is in this, that the good hand of God is at work fulfilling the promises that he made earlier to move this work forward. And so, by the hand of God, the good work moves forward now. And they said, verse 18, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. And with each step of progress, the stakes are higher. And with each step of progress, we have more history with the hand of God to look back on. And we need it because the opposition keeps showing up. Opposition number two in verses 19 and 20. Here they are, once again, using the devil's favorite strategy, accusation. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab, they have another crony with them now, heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us. Talk about irritating. Proverbs 27.3 says, A stone is heavy and sand is weighty, but a fool's provocation is weightier than both of them. You felt a fool's provocation? There's, there's, this is sort of the Old Testament version of internet trolling here. They're, they're coming to him and jeering and mocking them. And not only that, but they're using our enemy's favorite strategy. Accusation. Are you rebelling against the king? You felt accused before, right? What's your, what's your reflex when you're accused? Well, I want to prove that the accusation doesn't hold water. I want to prove that I'm innocent. I want to prove that this isn't true. I want to respond to the internet troll and tell them why they're, why they're off base. Nehemiah chooses a much more effective route. He doesn't try to do that. Once again, he banks on God's power alone. And he says to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper. The God of heaven will make us prosper. This is, this is not for you. This is not your work. You have no portion or right in Jerusalem. And ultimately, you have no power over us. The God of heaven will make us prosper. This is his work. Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem are not going away. The king's letters will not get rid of them. But the king's letters are doing their job. They're doing the job that God intends for them, serving as a reminder that the hand of God is with them for good, that God has come to seek the favor of his people. So the good hand of God is strengthening the hand of the people for their work. The God of heaven still hasn't changed. This is the same God of heaven that we serve today. We trust in the same hand to be at work for us today. And in reality, we have even greater access to him and to his work than, than Nehemiah had. 
you may have some idea what your work is today in building the kingdom. You might wonder what it is. To some degree, that's a question that we're still trying to answer as a church. One of the questions that, uh, that legitimately came up from our last congregational meeting last week is, what are we going to do next? We're still trying to figure that out. We want to know. We know some of the things we're going to do next. We have prayer walks scheduled. The Lord has still kept the doors open for our seminary support plan. We're still working on this. I saw the hand of God at work in this this very week. As I had a conversation with a seminary prof that resulted in one more slight change of course. And then I had a very encouraging conversation with our ministry partner, the 222 Foundation, that has begun to open up new horizons for how we might pursue and support and engage with seminary students as we work together to make disciples in that way. See the hand of God at work. I want us to hear from Jesus about this very thing in John 15. Do we have reason to believe we can expect our work to be effective in his hands? And Jesus makes very clear that we can. Jesus says in John 15:5, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Your hands can't establish their own work, but put your hands where my hands are. Abide in me, join me in what I'm doing, and you will bear much fruit. So, how do we abide in Christ? That's a lifelong question. I'm not going to answer it all now. But a few things about what it looks like to abide in Christ today, even as we try to determine what do we do next and how do we do it and how can we have confidence that it will be effective. Well, the first thing that we do is we come to Jesus and we say, what does your kingdom look like? What are the priorities of your kingdom? Jesus gives us a very important one in in verse 12 of John 15. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. So we come to Jesus, we say, what is your kingdom like? And he says, here's what it's characterized by. You love one another. So we hear from Jesus what it's like, and then we step back and we say, what does it look like for us to love one another well and wisely now, where we are? That takes some thought on our part. Prayer and planning are not enemies. They're not enemies for Nehemiah. They're not enemies for us. It's good for us to think, what does it look like for us to love one another well? We'll answer some of those questions together. We'll answer some of those questions individually. And the Lord will begin to shape our sense of what does it look like to love one another wisely today. And then we keep coming back to him. We ask And we act, and we ask, and we act, and we ask. And in that way, we abide in him. And that's exactly what Jesus tells us to do in John 15, 7. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. 
as you come to me and receive the work that I've laid out and you put your hands where my hands are, I will establish the work of your hands. Ask for whatever you will from there and I will give it to you. And that's such an exciting thing to do on the ground, isn't it? The Lord brings to your idea a way that you think, I think this is a way that I could love my brother or my sister or my neighborhood. And you think, I'm going to need some help with this. Lord, would, would you do this? Would you give me favor with others as I work to build your kingdom here? And you see him do it. Maybe in the way you expected. Maybe in a way you didn't expect. But you see him respond. You see it done for you. The time when we cannot move forward past opposition and obstacles on our own. And we can't go back. And so all we can do is ask for the hand of God to work and to watch it work. And that's God's intent for John 15, 8. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Father, we look to you for this help. We look to you to establish the work of our hands. We look to you to clarify in our minds, to put in our hearts the plans that you have for the welfare of your people, the plans that you have for the building of the kingdom of Christ. I pray that you would do this and that you would give us eyes to see your hand at work, giving us favor, and establishing the work that we join in. Strengthen us for this by your Spirit. In Jesus' name.